You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, here we are at your house this week. Yeah, unusual. Different setup. These are unusual times. Different location. Uh, chased out of my house by the fact that uh, my children's summer camps end a week before school starts. Yeah, it seems like this the first part of this week there are really no good options for childcare in this city. It's like everybody decides you're on your own for a couple days just so you will appreciate us. Yeah, it's almost like the people who run the summer camps are like, well, you're going to need a week to get ready for school. And everybody <laughs> yes, who has yes. their kids in a summer camp goes, no, but it's too late. I I was struck by the story where, uh, I don't know if it was you or your wife telling us that we showed up to drop them off at the summer camp and there was a sign on the door that said last week was the last week of summer camp. Yeah, well, we were out of town, right? My wife and I were out of town Thursday, Friday of that last week. So we were uh, not paying attention, obviously. So then we return and on Monday I go to take our three-year-old to his summer camp and it's closed. Sign on the door. Last week was the last week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thanks for attending the summer camp yeah. was basically the sign. You're welcome. So. Uh, yeah, so now we're at my house. My children at the moment are at their grandparents' house, but I believe my wife is on her way down there right now to pick them up. So if at some point during this podcast you hear the thumping of little feet or an anguished wail or even the sound of little feet coming mischievously down the stairs to interrupt us, that's what's going on there. There's just any number of things that can happen since we're we're out of our usual element and the setup here is frankly weird. We're side by side. I feel like at one point it's inevitable that I'm going to think I'm putting my hand on my knee, but really I'm going to put it on your knee. Yeah, we're wearing the same pants. Too, see, that's, so that's just confusing. Yeah, that's asking for trouble. Uh, but really, I'm choosing to think of this as a testament to our show must go on mentality here at the CME podcast. You know, one thing I noticed uh, is that the house across the street from you is for sale. Yeah, that goes up for sale once every couple of years. I'm not saying that my family is in the market, but... I'm glad you're not saying that. What say we finally make everyone's dream of how the Co-Main Event podcast works come true? Like, we basically live in the same house. Yeah. We wake up in the morning and, uh, you know, there's an MMA fighter in the kitchen working the heavy bag. Okay, so maybe we all live in one house and the other house is just a podcast house? I would think that's where our families live. And this would be more of a safe house for <laughs> okay. us. See, this is how we basically become cam girls. That's that's the last step. Uh, we should like have known that when people, we got involved in that. People are going to be on the Patreon, life. just like, how much for you to pinch Chad's nipples? And then there's no turning back. Yeah, just name your price. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, not that much. Ben Fletch goes down this Friday, August 31st. We will be recording the Co-Main Event Podcast book club about Fletch. Yes. When are we going to do that exactly? We'll figure it out. We'll figure out the time of day. Uh, I was thinking this is the time, I guess, that people can, people have either already taken care of business and read Fletch, or they can test your hypothesis that there was no need to worry about reading Fletch, and they might as well show up a couple days beforehand, hungover, shirtless, 
grab a paperback copy of Fletch and knock that fucker out in like 48 hours. I can tell you one of our two special guests that we have planned for this episode has chosen to go that route. Okay. This special guest has been in possession of a copy of Fletch for weeks now and to my knowledge has yet to crack it open. So that's at least one one person on board with that strategy. Well, uh, I don't want to tip tip our hand too much here in the special guest department. The other special guest hasn't been told that maybe she did something she's going to want to do. What? The other special guest we were planning on, maybe uh, the booking agent dropped the ball on setting that up. Are you trying to tell us that you fucked this up? I'll tell you one thing I noticed, though. That special guest uh, is just finishing up the book she's reading right now. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying maybe there's only going to be one special guest. I'm saying get your shit together, man. Yeah. That's I'm, a, I'm speaking to you personally. That's a... This uh, is on you. No, it's an able criticism. I can't deny it. <laughs> and a frequent one. Ben, tell the kids how they get down with the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon if they so desire. Well, Chad, you just go to patreon.com slash co-main event. There you can get down with all sorts of fun extras, like the live streaming version of this podcast, which some people are watching us on right now. That's where they can see us side by side and play the will-they-won't-they game as far as knee touches go. Uh, If you're a Patreon, you get all of that, plus a lot more, and merchandise soon, from what I'm told. How about that? Uh... We got music again this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him, you can check him out on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or over on SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. Uh, As you all know by now, that's the word the with an A in The Fifth Element. Yeah, you know that. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Justin Gaethje KOs James Vick and then jumps on the mic to let us know he's not deceiving himself about why we like him so much. And in round number two, Bare Knuckle FC2 went down this weekend and God, if only they could figure out a way so that these boxers would stop breaking their hands. Uh, but we just, uh, we don't have the technology. And in round number three, don't be scared to wear a purple tuxedo jacket in public, homie. It's the perfect MMA feud nobody needed or wanted now that Bruce Buffer and Nate Diaz are mortal enemies. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Colin from Chicago. He writes, can we all pour one out, metaphorically, since it's a Monday morning, for one Mr. Jake Ellenberger? He finally announced his retirement, probably four fights too late, but shrug, it's MMA, after dropping his fourth consecutive fight to B-squared. While he may not have had the most successful career ever, the juggernaut had his share of violent moments. From an absolute slugfest that saw him almost become the first to KO Carlos Conduit uh, in his debut to destroying Jake Shields after he gave GSP all he could handle to recapturing the magic one last time against matt brown the man could make shit happen thoughts on the career of the juggernaut yeah i had a similar feeling about it was a little bit too late but our idea of too late is so skewed by how things usually go that i I can't even really get that upset about it but i did feel like watching how easily he went down to punches at the hands of brian barbarina the pirate brian barbarina uh you felt like, okay, man, this is not going to get any better. You've been going down easier and easier, taking some hard shots recently. You've been in a bunch of t- tough fights. I mean, you look at like the last you know, 10 years of Jake Ellenberger's career, 
And he's out there with, you know, you got Robert Glenn Lawler. He's out there with Roy McDonald, Nate Marquardt, Kelvin Gastelum, uh, The Wonder Man, Stephen Thompson, Tarek Safadine, Matt Brown, Jorge Masvidal, Mike Perry, Ben Saunders, Brian Barberina. He's going down a little easier and easier in those last few. And that's not one of those that gets better with age. And so I was thinking, man, I, I really hope I don't have to watch this again. I hope this is the last one. Sure enough, you pan over to Jake Ellenberger. He's standing there with his gloves off and you go, okay. Now I feel a little bit better about the whole thing. Yeah. Jake Ellenberger, always uh, a guy that maybe inexplicably I always had positive feelings about. I remember his debut against Carlos Condit, the uh, UFC debut. Uh, was it the UFC debut for both those guys? Or was it, uh, I can't remember, but they they were both sort of like burgeoning on their UFC careers. Uh, and Ellenberger really put up a terrific fight against Carlos Condit. I remember watching that fight and thinking, hey, this guy, he could be going places, uh, even though he came out uh, uh, on the wrong end of that uh, of that particular fight. Second uh, uh, UFC fight for Carlos Condit. Okay. First one was there against uh, Martin Campman. Yeah, uh, but that was Jake Ellenberger's UFC debut, I believe. Yes, I believe it yeah, was. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he seemed like a guy who had all the potential in the world. Uh, so he's one of those guys that he never really panned out in the way that maybe you thought he might, but... You know, the cruel realities of the fight game. Not everybody is going to be the champion. So, like, I will think fondly about Jake Ellenberger. Seemed like a, uh, you know, he was an exciting fighter to watch. He seemed like a, a a pretty good guy from all the accounts and the couple of times that I interviewed him. So, uh, I, he's one of those guys that I feel like, you know, maybe he's walking away a shade late, but also kind of like, uh, you know, in a timely fashion. It's not, if he stay, if he continued to come back, I think we would start to feel like, okay, Jake. Time to time to walk away. He's also a dude, though, uh, that I would not be surprised if at some point, you know, you turn around and, oh, there's Jake Ellenberger in the PFL Million Dollar Tournament. Yeah, well, that's true of any MMA retirement is always kind of a tentative retirement until years go by. I was stunned to learn Jake Ellenberger, 33 years old. It yeah. feels like I've been watching Jake Ellenberger almost as long as I've been watching Mixed Martial Arts. Right, and you just talked about the tour of duty. Like right. You look at the recent history of Jake Ellenberger, uh, and he's out here fighting these killers, these hitters. Yeah, he's out there against some hitters. Next question this week comes to us from Cameron Chapman, who writes, We all know Dana White is the greatest fight promoter in history. What this email presupposes is, maybe he isn't? Oh, I see what you did. Over the weekend, two people who make money on the internet, with what I can only assume are poor ripoffs of MTV's jackass, somehow convinced 800,000 people to part with their hard-earned $10, in addition to the 15,000 who showed up at the venue in Manchester. Are you fucking kidding me? Now there's a chance 800,000 of those people were shit-eating Wildman for boxing, clam to see who would be crowned the WBC YouTube champion. There's also a chance uh, Chad secretly microwaves delicious buttery popcorn when the house has gone silent and actually loves microwaves, but probably not. I've always suspected it. It's always difficult to separate out what moves the needle. The UFC will tell you it's the brand that people tune in for, the UFC titles, etc. I myself have to watch the fighters and think the promotion should be making several major changes. But whatever the hell was going on in Manchester provides us with some solid evidence that it's the fighters that people pay to see, not the brand. So what does this mean? More CM Punks? Do fighters uh, use this as leverage? Please discourse. Now, of course, Ben, we are talking about the clash between, I'm, I don't have my notes in front of me, so I'm just going to say a YouTube fellow named Logan Paul. Okay. And his arch nemesis, whose name I believe was KSI. All right. Here's what I know about this. And maybe you can help me fill in. No, I can't. I can't. Because this is one of those things where when it's, well, it's while it's happening, I'm sitting at home being like, wow, I really am old. I yeah. really am disconnected from this entire 
uh, society. Yes. Now, Logan Paul, I've heard of because people got mad at him. He was in Japan, like walking around, just like streaming his life. I've read a, a New Yorker p- feature on this, which is another way I know that I'm old, is that I rely on the New Yorker to tell me about cultural trends that by the time the New Yorker writes about them have been going on for many years. Uh, they're called IRL streamers, I believe. In real life? In real life. Okay, I, I, I Maybe he's one of these. He's walking around just like streaming his activities via YouTube, and he was in what was referred to as a suicide forest in Japan, where a lot of people went to commit suicide, and he found a the body of somebody who had committed suicide and was just kind of like smoking and joking and cracking wise about the dead body of somebody, and people got really mad at him, and he was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, but now it seems like I can't tell if people hate him. Like if the thing is that people watch him because they hate him, but then he's up in this boxing match against KSI, who I've definitely never heard of. But the thing that astounded me was I look around on Twitter, like Saturday afternoon, I'm getting ready for the fights to start. I'm sitting down, I'm, you know, seeing what I missed on the social medias. It seems like all the MMA people are watching this. Like colleagues of ours in the MMA media are watching this. Yeah. A boxing match, with a bunch of dudes in headgear. Some of them seem like they know a little bit of something about boxing. Some of them seem like they know absolutely nothing about boxing. I, It does make you wonder, like, is this about how some people will watch anybody fight, no matter where it is and who they are? Or is it just that if you are somebody we might care about for whatever reason, fighting is something we will always watch you do? Kind of like how anybody can put out a sex tape if they are – God, I hate to make that comparison, but I can't help myself – like anybody who's like kind of even semi-famous, you put out a sex tape and people are like, okay, yeah, no, I'll watch that person have sex. Like it reminds me of the thing that Dean Thomas says he tells fighters, which is that you are paid not to fight. You are paid uh, to be watched. And fighting is the thing that you are doing when you are being watched. Like that's the way the career is. Does something like this give further credence to that, do you think? Well, if Cameron Chapman's numbers are accurate, that 800,000 people watched the thing for $10 a pop, I believe probably on a YouTube uh, pay-per-view stream uh that's pretty astonishing i mean i you you don't have to sell me on the idea that a lot of people are watching these uh these youtube celebrities and know who they are because i know that's true i'm certainly not one of them but uh you know obviously you're, you're not charging the kind of money that you would ask for for a ufc pay-per-view here but eight hundred thousand would be a, a hell of a buy rate for any of the uh world's largest mixed martial arts promoter to notch at this point so like I think I would probably agree with Cameron Chapman that this seems like a personalities thing that these, these people who I had known nothing about aside from Logan Paul appears to be famous for being kind of a dumb guy. Uh, these people know who these people are and they want, they want them to fight. So it's a sign that I am both out of touch with what is happening in this particular venue. And, uh, that yeah, man, if you can get people to care about you in any kind of way, they will show up to, to pay some money to watch you throw down. Okay, so my next question is, when are we fighting on pay-per-view? You and me. We're going to have to, uh, I'm going to talk to my, my people and we'll get back to you on that. Because it's either this or a sex tape, man, and I'm telling you. Well, here we are sitting side by side. I really hope it's the fight. I really do. Next question this week comes to us from Keith Elwin, who I believe is a professional uh, gamer. He's a, a pinball uh, player. Or... professional pinball player, yeah. 
So that's something that you now know exists. He writes, did you see your boy Eric? Did you see? I'm sorry. No, Start don't. Over. No, no, we I read it correctly. Start. It says, did you see your boy Eric, okay. your boy yeah, Anders? Right. I just, in my mind, I thought that can't be right, but <laughs> that's the way it's written. Did you see your boy Eric, your boy Anders out there Saturday Saturday evening? They like to mention that he used to play football, but he came out here and gave us the closest thing to a soccer kick we can legally get in the UFC with a brutal head kick KO of Tim Williams. Anders was the heaviest favorite coming into the event, but showed promise with great striking and takedown defense that improved as the fight went on. Uh, with the bounce back after the controversial decision loss against Leota Machida, where do you rank Eric Anders among your 185-pound prospects? Oh, did he play football? I don't know. I, I wish they'd mentioned that. Yeah, roll tide. Yeah, I right? wish somebody would have told me that he played a little football. Uh, here's what I did. My wife was out, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to check out the fights. So I turned on uh, the broadcast here of uh, the Fox Sports 1 Saturday Night Extravaganza. Eric Anders against Tim uh, Williams is the first fight on the card. I start watching this thing. Pretty boring. Really? Not great. I get two rounds in. Here's what I did. You know what? I'm DVRing this anyway. I'm going to go ahead and catch up with this later. I turned it off. And the first thing that I find, first I hear about this knockout, is from Keith Elwin when he writes in to, to ask us about it. pinball player. So uh, I watched all the bad parts and then turned it off right before the head kick knockout. I didn't think it was boring before that. There were some swings back and forth. Yeah, but I had better call Saul going on the uh, on the Twitter or the uh the uh, Netflix machine. So see, see these windows we get in the Chaz life, everybody. So was, that's what I wanted to do instead of watch the, the fight thing. You know, to me, it was a little bit surprising that it ended up being this competitive of a fight because it seems like Eric Anders is somebody the UFC really is excited about. Yeah. Like we got a whole video package of him like sitting down with Nick Saban beforehand, right? Like studying tape, studying tape in the Alabama uh, locker room or whatever. And, you know, you match him up there against Tim Williams. Like, to go from Leota Machida to Tim Williams, it seems like I can look at... I can do the math there, and I can tell what you want to happen there if you're the UFC, if you're the promoter. And Tim Williams gave him a little bit of a tough fight in times. He had to uh, come back, and it wasn't just like a steamroll kind of thing. He lands that kick, which, man, I always love a kick where I can't tell if you have great timing or you were just completely willing to break the rules and it all worked out for you. But he caught him just as he gets up off the mat. Perfect kick right your boy going right across your face. Uh, I'm into it. I'm interested. Let's see where he goes from here. And there seems like, you know, you got to have a a mid-level there between Tim Williams and Leo Machida somewhere that we can find for your boy to fit in, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're four fights in now, right? And with the Eric Anders uh, UFC experience, he's won them all besides that loss to Leo Machida. He's clearly a, a blue chip prospect, which we knew kind of right when he arrived, just because of his athletic background, uh, the size of the guy. He's an able 185 pounder. However, like when I watch him fight, especially in this fight against Tim Williams, where as Keith Elwin uh, points out to us, he's the biggest favorite on the card. Like, I'm not sure that I see greatness. I'm not sure that I see the future champion in Eric Anders just yet. And that's not to say that the guy, you know, might continue to evolve and improve and become that level of fighter. But I just think like maybe in part because of the hype and because he has like such a high level athletic background, maybe I expected more. Uh, and, and you know, I'm just not sure that I see, a, I think that he's a terrific, uh, 
I think that he's a terrific prospect. I'm just not sure that I see the, uh, you know, the potential for him to become one of the greats just yet. And maybe that's not fair. And keep in mind, I'm speaking as a guy who turned this fight off right before the exciting shit happened. Yeah, so, that is true. Also, uh, he's been fighting for almost exactly three years as a professional at this point. So still a, a, a lump of clay. Yes. You might say. Yeah. And two things about the Ya Boy nickname. In a way, it it's so dumb that it works. Because it's it's fun and ridiculous to say. I mean, the the you're your boy Keith Elwin could not stop himself from using your boy twice in the first sentence of his email, and I fully understand why. Yeah, now that I know we can call him your boy Eric, your boy Anders, like I'm kind of <laughs> into it. Also, though, a part of me flashes forward to Eric Anders deep into his MMA career on the downward slide of a career. He's 38 years old, taking a few losses, scar tissue bunched up around his face, heaving himself into a cage as they announce him as your boy. And he just kind of smiles wryly to himself. Well, it's one of those nicknames that has an expiration date. It's also like really kind of rooted in a cultural moment. Like maybe (laughs) five years from now, people will be like, your boy, huh? Okay. Uh, Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington, who writes, so we're really doing El Kakui versus Pretty Tony, huh? Am I the only person that thinks we're just pissing in the MMA god's eyes with this fight? To me, this seems tailor-made to invite disaster. Either noted kick enthusiast, then parenthetically the kickest, Kickmaster General, Kick Diaz, Anthony Pettis, uh, finishes... And those are all good. Those are all pretty good. Anthony Pettis finishes what the errant power cord started and destroys Ferguson's knee, or simply has to fight... He simply has the fight of his life and halts a legendary streak. There's no way this goes according to plan, uh, with T. Ferg winning convincingly doing, after doing five to eight um, Imanari rolls, right? Uh, please talk me off the ledge, my dudes. Well... One of the things I like about this fight, I mean, for one thing, style-wise, it seems like an action fight. Seems like you've got to have some crazy fun stuff going on in that fight. But also, if Anthony Pettis goes out there and wins that fight, I'm not mad at that result because that will be like a legit kind of turnaround moment for Anthony Pettis. You know, I mean, he's coming off that win against Michael Chiesa, but if you go out there and you beat Tony Ferguson and halt this streak, that's significant. Yeah. Now Anthony Pettis is somebody that people are paying attention to again. I don't think it's a situation where you need only one result here if you're the UFC or that that there's only one way that this fight turns out to be a good idea and it's if Tony Ferguson wins. I think either way it goes. We get a good fight out of it and like a a clear, decisive result. I'm not mad. Right. And like the Tony Ferguson win is probably one that the odds will foretell. And if that happens, it's just sort of a, an outcome where we can all look at it and nod and say he back. Tony Ferguson, still the guy that we thought he was, uh, returning now from injury and somehow making it through a training camp where he, you know, does military presses on top of a of a workout ball and uh, comes back and is is the force in the 155 pound division that we thought that he was going to be. Uh, it is a much bigger deal if Anthony Pettis wins. Both a setback for uh, uh, El Kakui and also, like you said. Uh, more of a, a return to form for Pretty Tony, kind of like a flag in the sand moment, a, the, a comeback story for him, arguably the better story. But I understand, like, if I was, you know, a person like Andrew Millington, I might think that that was somehow disappointing. If I had been for the longest time, uh, you know, anticipating the rise of Tony Ferguson, and then it is sort of, uh, he gets shuffled to the side in a, in a kind of a strange pairing that turns out uh, to be the one that breaks his win streak. Yeah, well, but I mean... 
it is kind of a tough, on one hand, for Tony Ferguson, maybe it's a good, like, ease back into things fight. It's uh, style-wise, like a matchup that, you know, he, he can do some of his stuff. But also, if you were just the interim champ, and you were looking at a huge title fight, and now you're fighting Anthony Pettis, that does have to feel like a major step back. And also, a point that Brian Ortega made, he was backstage at uh, the fight night in Lincoln, Nebraska, saying... You know, if you look at how the interim title thing has gone for other people, I think I feel kind of vindicated in my decision not to go for that and to wait for the real belt. You look at Tony Ferguson's situation and you got to kind of agree with him there. Last question this week comes to us from Mr. Burrito Bowl. Okay. I love his restaurants. Sounds like a chain of restaurants anyway. I don't care who wins the Habib versus McGregor fight as long as both guys get to actually do their thing and it lasts more than 30 seconds. I'm worried it will end up disappointing in its length. That's what she said. Well, come on, man. Right? <laughs> Habib needs to pull a Randy Couture-style James Tony ankle pick, and he probably won't take a punch. What all McGregor opponents seem to do, though, is to try to beat Connor at his own game. Is Habib going to be stupid and try to stand with McGregor to prove a point? People fight Connor differently than they would any other opponent, and I just don't get it. What are the odds Habib dicks around testing Connor's striking and gets slept? Discourse, please. I mean, I guess there's always that chance. I don't know, though, if that's the situation that I most likely see Habib getting slept in. I see the situation being more like, if if, if we assume, if we presuppose that he's going to get slept in the fight, the way I see him doing it is by just marching straight in for a takedown without any regard for the offense that might be coming his way as he's closing the distance, which we've seen him do in the past. Like, that's sometimes where he can get himself in trouble is he's just charging straight in, like acting like he has already taken you down and he just wants to fast forward to that part. And if you do that against Conor McGregor, there is a chance that you could walk into a a big left hand and turn your world upside down. That would be the scenario I'd be more envisioning. Like, some of his comments already suggested that he recognized the potential that, hey, if you're out there trying to play Muhammad Ali against Conor McGregor like he did against Ali Akinta, there might be a problem for you there. Seems like he at least knows that risk already, right? Yeah. And like, you know, remember how the win over Ally Aquinta was regarded as disappointing for uh, Habib Nurmagomedov? I feel like even though he did like eventually engage in some fisticuffs in that fight, I feel like the message that I took away from that fight was that Habib doesn't really care. He doesn't really care if... Uh, He's exciting you or entertaining you. I fully expect he will go out there against Conor McGregor and use his strengths and like try to craft a boring 25 minute like ground based uh, beatdown, if not a stoppage before that happens. The thing that I worry about with him, though, is that he is or has been in the past one of these dudes where like if he gets tagged, will insist on firing back. He has that, like, remember when Chris Lieben used to talk about how he had a button yes. in his chin? When he got punched, he punched back. Nurmagomedov has that sort of reckless streak in him where you you can bait this dude into a slugfest if you want to. And clearly that will be Conor McGregor's best path to victory. And if Conor McGregor can do that, if if he can, you know, have a few exchanges in this fight where Nurmagomedov has thrown caution to the wind, that's when Nurmagomedov gets knocked out. Yeah, maybe. I also think, though, that... Uh the goal for Nurmagomedov is going to be let's be careful in the first round 
early in a fight when Conor McGregor is dangerous and then wear him out because we've seen Conor McGregor get tired. You've seen the, the takedowns come easier and easier and that if you keep the pressure on him, uh, maybe that will wear him down. I think that that's going to be the goal. And I, I also, though, I understand what Mr. Burrito Bowl here is saying about Conor McGregor's ability to kind of convince people to do something dumb against him. It's been uncanny so yeah. far. Well, and it seems to me that the dumb thing that might happen in a fight like this is that Habib is going to go in there and really want to punish him. And like he's said as much already, right? Like he wants to change his face. And so that even if there are opportunities to look for a submission or something, he wouldn't really go for it, that he might try to string out this prolonged beating just because that's what he has in mind that he wants to do. And maybe you let the guy hang around that way and it ends up biting you in the ass later on. Habib Nurmagomedov seems like a dude who would be impervious to Conor McGregor's pre-fight mind games, which in a way Nate Diaz kind of was, as we all anticipated. I was astonished uh, that in retrospect, it seemed like Jose Aldo had fallen victim to that. You would have thought leading up to the fight that Aldo was, uh, you know, too much of a of a storied veteran of like a, a, a hard baked MMA fighter to let any of that stuff bother him. But then he goes out there and basically sprints right into a left hand gets knocked out in, in 13 seconds. And I have to wonder after the fact, maybe some of the, like the, the world tour and the pre-fight antics did get to him. McGregor has been super good at that, like startlingly good. I just don't think that he will be able to like talk Habib Nurmagomedov into doing anything that Habib doesn't want to do. Uh, but it's like, like we every time this fight comes up, I feel like I say the same thing, though. Like, it's a super interesting matchup of styles. It is. And if you told me that Conor McGregor knocked out Habib Nurmagomedov in 13 seconds the same way he did to Jose Aldo, I would be surprised, but I wouldn't tell you you were a fucking liar. True. Right? I would tell you that, like, uh, I could see that happening. It is one of the, you know, I don't, it's not the way I would bet, but it's like one of the outcomes that is that is out there for this fight. Yeah. No, I don't disagree. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Listener Mail. If you have questions or comments or concerns that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can check out the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. Big changes coming pretty soon to the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. In fact, the kids got their first taste. Yeah, this week. Got a little taste. Got a little taste of, a little of bit. The, some of the new stuff. Uh, as for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, Justin Ray Gaethje goes out there in the main event of UFC Lincoln on Saturday night and does exactly what he needed to do, not only to KO James Vick in a minute and 27 seconds, but also kind of remind us all that he is one of the high-level 155-pound fighters in this sport and that he is a guy uh, who's a threat to almost everyone. And so uh, I wanted to get your reaction coming out of this this big win from Justin Gaethje. Not only does he put a little distance between himself and two consecutive losses to Dustin Poirier and, and Eddie Alvarez, but uh, 
it was almost like not to commit gimmick infringement here uh, on our guy over at the MMA Fortnite, but it seemed like a y'all must have forgot victory to me for Justin Gaethje. Yeah, well, definitely y'all must have forgot that he could go out there and just start somebody. Yeah, one punch knockout. Because it, maybe we just gotten used to Justin Gaethje as the long firefight kind of grinder that he will keep the pressure on and keep coming at you uh, and force you into this back and forth that will ultimately favor him or force you to get rid of him that way, uh, but just won't take a backward step, won't get out of your face. And you kind of forgot that he could also just land one big punch and sleep you, which is exactly what happened to James Victor. And James Vick not doing badly in that fight right up until he gets cracked. No, someone tweeted me he was fighting so well he would have won if he hadn't lost. Well, I don't know if you can do the would have won if you hadn't lost if you get knocked out in the first 90 seconds. Yeah, if there were... We need a bigger sample size. If there were 28 minutes and 30 seconds more of this bad boy, probably would have taken the title home. But he was doing... You know, he had a pretty good game plan, it seemed, for keeping Justin Gaethje away with kicks and uh, landing some of those kicks too, yeah, pretty hard managing the distance pretty well stumbled Justin Gaethje at one point, but you could see that Justin Gaethje also had it in his head. Like when I see James Vick's heels come like close to the fence, then I'm going after him. And that's exactly where he caught him. And that, that one big right hand just perfectly on the chin and he's out before he hits the mat. Yeah, uh, caught him just when he needed to catch him too. like pressured him, like you said, up against the fence and caught him kind of moving backwards and just stroked him with a uh, a right hand knockout that will probably not win knockout of the year. But I bet it'll be on some lists like it's probably going to be a candidate because this, you know, not that it was a flashy move or anything like that, but just the way James Vick dropped on his face was impressive, uh, an impressive sign of the power that lurks in Justin Gaethje. Then, of course, he gets on the mic uh, in the post-fight interview afterwards and reminds us all that for, like, a balls-to-the-wall, never-say-die savage, Justin Gaethje comes off as both reasonable and, like, uh, pretty self-aware. Yeah, I really love a lot of what's going on in the aftermath of this fight. Because it just just to run it down, he, he flashes the double birds, which... Okay, there you go. That's yep. a given. There was some trash talk. There was some trash talk. He does the uh, the hand gesture for you sleep now. Yep, yep, uh, that, that happened. That's fun. He does like instantly after the, when it, getting the knockout, does his thing of flipping off the fence and sticking the landing. Yeah, which I, this is where I'm at in life. I'm always like, no, your ankles. <laughs> yeah, just come on, man. Think about your knees. Uh, but he just went straight to that. Then... He jumps out of the cage, uh, celebrates with like friends and family, then flips back into the cage. Yeah, front flip on the way back in, which, if anything, has to be the more practiced move, right? Because like the way he flipped back into the cage seemed like, oh, well, that's just how Justin Gaethje enters a cage. Yeah, yeah. Like Andre the Giant stepping over the top. Yeah, exactly. Road. Yeah. Like that's his move. Uh, and then afterwards in the post fight interview is like, you know, doing a little bit of gloating, not going super hard in on the gloating, even though it was did have that like rivalry grudge match kind of thing after James Vick called him uh, Homer Simpson. So that one, you know, you're going to want to get some points back after that one. But 
did it by saying, you know what, I don't want to make him feel worse because he's already going to feel terrible when he wakes up in the morning. He's not going to be able to look at himself in the mirror tomorrow. So I don't want to make him feel any worse. And it's like, yeah, no, you're not rubbing it in at all. You're just talking, you're rubbing it in about how you're not going to rub it in because you don't need to. Well, yeah. Uh, he also said that he's the realest guy out here in the post-fight interview. So it seems Justin Gaethje is not one of these guys who's going to do the trash talk with you and then afterwards is going to be like, yeah, we were just trying to sell the fight. Yeah. He's going to be mad. Which I appreciate that about yeah. a mixed martial arts fighter. A small moment, but he also put a different spin on the Paul Felder call out. Yes, right? yeah. Like where he was just like he was like, Yeah, you know, I want to fight Tony Ferguson or, or wait, I heard that you wanted to fight me. Yeah. And, and then, Paul Felder, of course, who and, just got his cast off, is he's down for whatever. Yeah, and Paul Felder was like, Yeah, sure, I'd love to fight you. And then Justin Gacy laughs and is like, Yeah, I want Tony Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh let's talk about Justin Gaethje's post fight assertion that he should get all of his money up front rather than do the 50-50 post-fight win bonus thing that is so common in the UFC. I want to talk about both why Justin Gaethje is right about that specifically for him, but also maybe about the nature of the 50-50 UFC contract structure. Yeah, he wants a business meeting, Yeah, like he said with the (laughs) UFC. Wants to talk talk some business. And I think you're right, he made it, a, and he put the point in a way everybody could understand it because he was like, I don't want to have to worry about getting all my money if I win or lose. Like, you want me to fight this way. Like, that's what you like about me. That's what fans like about me. That's what makes him appointment viewing. I mean, you take Justin Gaethje away from this fight card and it is garbage. Right. Nobody is tuning in to watch it. Like, he is the thing that makes this something that you want to watch. And the thing about him that makes him that way is because he fights like he's not worried about winning and losing. And so his argument being like, use me as an example, show other fighters. If you fight like Justin Gaethje does, if you fight like you don't care whether you win or lose, we'll make sure that you'll get all your money, whether you win or lose. And I can't disagree with him. But then again, I've made this same argument in regards to Donald Cerrone that like he was a guy, especially back in the, you know, peak cowboy era, you did not want Donald Cerrone out there talking about how he was unhappy with his pay. Right. Because he is the guy you should want other fighters to aspire to be like. Like, it's an action style. It, it helps uh, maintain fan interest. It makes it so that it's not just the title fights that people care about. Like, everything about him. Like, personality, fighting style, all that stuff. You should want to show other fighters, look, if you can do what he d- did, you will be rewarded richly for it. And the UFC's argument was, well, hey, you got to win them all. Like, it's that same thing where uh, the UFC itself can't really decide what it wants you to do, what message it's trying to give to fighters. And it leaves fighters in the situation where they're out there trying to figure out what the rain dance is. Like, what is the thing that's going to make the money pour down out of the sky? And sometimes it's you got to win them all. Sometimes it's that you got to be exciting. Sometimes it's that, you know, you got to just connect on a personal level with the fans. They don't know what it is. They're out there trying everything they can possibly think of, wondering when the money's going to show up. And Justin Gaethje's point here, I think, is well made. And I also think the UFC is going to ignore it as long as it can. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that I said that Justin Gaethje seems shockingly self-aware and reasonable is that he seems to acutely understand that we are not watching him hanging on whether he wins and loses. Uh, We are watching him because of how he fights. And uh, I think that he makes a, a super valid point that 
just because of the like the brand of popularity that he enjoys, the fact that you can plug him in, as you said, in the main event of an otherwise fairly junk card out here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, and you know nobody's going to complain about it. You know, and just that he's like one of these dependable figures that you know when you tune in, he's either going to knock the dude out in a minute and 27 seconds, or we're going to have like a 15-minute slugfest on our hands. And it's hard. You can't refute any of that. So, like, I think that the guy's absolutely right that he's one of the people that should get all of his upfront money or all of his money up front. Uh, and it also, as you alluded to while you were talking, uh, it speaks to kind of like the changing landscape of the UFC in some ways, because clearly the 50-50... Uh, pay structure exerts a certain control over the athletes. Like you have to show up and fight. Uh, you better try real hard to win. Uh, you know, you, you, you better mind your P's and Q's because half your money depends on this fight going down and whether or not you win or lose. It seems now in the new UFC hot take, they would be better off just giving people their money up front. You, you know, uh, considering the style of fighting that the UFC seems to want to prioritize now. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that it allows them to do is to sell people on the idea that they're getting more money than they actually are. Like it's a good psychological tool when you're in contract negotiations with a fighter because you sit down with a fighter who's always planning on winning every single fight and you tell them, all right, here's your deal, 50 and 50. What they're hearing is 100 grand per fight. Yeah. Sounds good. Sign me up for that. And you know I can promise both those guys that, and they're both going to hear a hundred grand. But I'm not going to have to pay out a hundred grand each guy each time. I'm going to get a break, and it it helps in that like kind of psychological sense. But it also I think probably the UFC tells itself that this is an incentive to win. But I, I agree that you don't really have to incentivize professional cage fighters to win. There are already so many reasons to want to win. One is that you avoid getting your ass beat on TV. So that's a pretty strong incentive. Also, winning and losing usually determines like the arc of your career. You lose a few, you're going to get dropped. You're not going to go for the title, make big money. So they already want to win. What you should have to do is incentivize them to stop worrying about winning and losing. Like That's the tougher thing. And you need a lot of them, if you want this kind of exciting style of fight, you need them to be able to at least take a little bit of that pressure off and stop worrying about the result. So it, it makes sense in a lot of ways. And you see anybody who gets any kind of negotiating leverage, the first thing they do is get rid of the win-show structure. Like you see Daniel Cormier, John Jones, those guys, they're not getting one amount of money to show up and another amount of money to win. They're just getting their money to show up. And it works for them. Like it's not like you're going out there and being like, Daniel Cormier no longer has an incentive to win. <laughs> That's not happening. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Uh, ben, since you already peeped it out on the screen of my computer here, I will just go ahead and do my Are You Fucking mm. Kidding Me? Mm. Uh, which is not, it's it's not MMA related. But once I saw it, it was so stuck in my mind brain. Doesn't even matter. That I was like, this has to be my Are You Fucking Kidding for yeah. this this week. Uh, it is the new advertising slogan for the city of Vinius, which I believe uh, is over there in Croatia. They got advertisements now up all over Europe advertising itself as a tourist destination, referring to itself as, this is a quote now, Vinius, the G-spot of Europe. Okay. Which is good, okay. but you haven't even got to the tagline yet. <laughs> Here's where the, the hardy, are you fucking kidding me, turn, turns up. Nobody knows where it is, but when you find it, it's amazing. 
Are you fucking kidding me, Vinius? Are you kidding? Where did you Hats see off. this? Salute. I believe I say Guardian article about it. And this is like the the, the article was about like it trying to brand itself as a tourist destination. Yeah. And it was uh, using this slogan. It was like, some people the, don't approve of Vinius's tagline. This is the official slogan, huh? And I was like, I approve wholeheartedly of it. <laughs> you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? How excited was I to see Joanne Calderwood back in the win column after two years? Pretty excited, especially because after she gets taken down early in the first round, I'm like, oh, man. I'm going to have to watch Joanne Collarwood just stuck on the bottom getting elbowed in her face. She pulls off off submission off her back. Not really her game. Then she shows up in the post-fight interview. My guy John Morgan's like, I thought you were a striker. Her response, in her great Scottish accent, in her voice, which sounds like an ASMR video, uh, she is a striker. But these betches keep taking me down. These betches, Chad. Yeah, no, I heard These betches keep taking her down, so she had to learn some jujitsu. You fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, I couldn't be all into the Joanne Calderwood hype train anymore. These betches. The Whispering Warrior. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, Bare Knuckle FC 2 went down in Biloxi, Mississippi, right where you'd expect to have a Bare Knuckle boxing match. And uh, Was it on a steamboat? Because that's where I thought it would go down. See, the old Bare Knuckle boxing matches, Mississippi was a favorite destination for those because it was close to New Orleans, so you could party. But then, you know, you it was illegal everywhere, but you could get on a train to a location not publicly disseminated Go to Mississippi in a little muddy field somewhere, set up your ring, have your fight, uh, and then get back on the train, get back to New Orleans to party before the sheriff can chase you down in Mississippi. So kind of a historical nod here, having a bare-knuckle boxing event in Mississippi. Then you could climb up on the saloon keeper's piano and issue your next challenge. That's right. For who you wanted to fight next. Pass the hat around. Um, Now this one, a marked difference in the public response to this one. Because the first one, I'll admit, I was surprised at how many people seemed to be watching it, talking about it on social media, somehow invested in it. And I wondered how much of it was just the curiosity factor, that it was a novelty, and that also it was happening on a night when there wasn't a whole lot else going on in combat sports. Yeah. Uh, this time, you're opposite a UFC fight night, not a huge fight night or anything, but it seemed like it was enough to take people's attention elsewhere. And, I mean, hey, if you're also looking for pay-per-view weird combat sports to watch, you could watch these dudes in headgear from YouTube fight each other for like 10 bucks, apparently. So maybe there was just enough to distract people because I did not feel the same buzz at all for this one. Well, yeah, that was the big question coming into Bare Knuckle FC2, was it not? Was whether that this thing would have proved to be sort of a novelty that people tuned in to kind of eat the candy the first time around, uh, or whether it would be the start of something that people would actually care care about in a long-term way. Uh, and I think when we talked about it after you had gone to Wyoming to attend the first one, I aired that as my question, and uh, my skepticism said that it would probably be the former and one of the things that I brought up about it was like, hey, man, people used to do bare knuckle boxing. It's a thing that used to happen. And there were reasons that they stopped. 
there were reasons uh, that Dr. Glove, I assume is the guy who did it, invented uh, the boxing glove. <laughs> Phineas right? Glove? Yeah, yeah, Phineas R. Glove. Uh, and one of the reasons was you'd be breaking your hand a lot in the bare knuckle boxing. Okay. And so you look at how a lot of the fights on this card played out. Charles Crazy Horse Bennett had his fight stopped because of a broken hand. The woman that uh, Beck Rawlings fought for some manner of belt, which was awesome, by the way, like the actual physical makeup of the bare knuckle boxing belt. Uh, they kind of nailed it as yeah. far as I'm concerned about what a bare knuckle boxing belt should look at look like. Uh, uh, Beck Rawlings, opponent, I believe, broke her hand. Uh, uh, who was the, the, the guy who, who got stopped on cuts? Uh, Joey Beltran got stopped yeah. on cuts. He was one of the stars of the last one. So like the, in one the, of the surprise stars. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the second one, you started to see some of the, uh, like inherent flaws of the bare knuckle game start to come to the fore. Um, okay. Everything you said about why they stopped is reasonable, but not entirely accurate. Uh Oh, fact check. Yeah. I'm going to correct you on a fact fact check from a guy who just wrote a hashtag lifestyle piece about the history of bare knuckle boxing yeah, and read a few books about bare knuckle boxing. Uh, wow. Wow. That's, uh, this is what the live stream is good for. Yeah. The live Can't stream is see good. the hand gestures on the podcast. You can imagine them. You can, and whatever you're imagining is probably correct. Uh, People did not stop bare knuckle boxing because they were like, you know what, we got to do something about this scourge of broken hands. Like that was not why they stopped. It was more of a like public reaction to the difference between a gloved fight and a bare knuckle brawl until somebody falls down. Okay. And it wasn't just the bare knuckle aspect of it, but bare, these bare knuckle fights, that was considered prize fighting, which was illegal in all 38 states uh, in like 1889, like the last the last time the heavyweight championship went up under the London prize ring rules. Uh, and those were seen as like, if you were even at them, you were kind of a criminal by definition because... Tell me more. Yeah. And so they happened, you know, and like... Uh, empty fields, they happened on barges, they happened in kind of like back room situations. There was one great example where they happened in a like a shuttered saloon that had been closed recently. Everybody showed up to the saloon late at night, had a bare knuckle boxing fight. When the cops arrested them and then tried to take everybody to court, uh, everybody was like, no, I I mean, I was there, but I don't recall there being a fight. Was there a fight there? I've missed, I must have missed it. Uh, and they got off that way. Uh, so it was like a lot of little tricks to get around it. But when they did gloved exhibitions, those were legal. You could have those in a theater. And just and John L. Sullivan made a lot of money traveling around the country and basically putting on the gloves. He'd come to your town and he'd say, all right, is there anybody here who thinks he can go four rounds with John L. Sullivan? Four three-minute rounds. You know, we'll put on the gloves scene then as like a training tool. Um, if you can last four three-minute rounds with me, I'll give you a hundred bucks or something. And nobody lasted. They knocked out everybody. Um, but it was like people started to see the gloved version and be like, okay, well, this is not so bad. Like, this is not so brutal. They had gloved fights in Madison Square Garden. And even like people, like newspapers at the time were like, okay, this is palatable. We could live with this. And so that's kind of why they switched. And especially after that last fight, they were both hounded by the governor of Mississippi, who sent deputies to chase them all the way to New York and bring them back on a train and prosecute them for prize fighting. And finally, they just decided it's not worth it. Let's put on the gloves, and then suddenly you can have it like in a real arena. You can sell tickets. You can make a lot more money that way. And like the cultural attitude toward it is different. It wasn't that they were just like, you know what? These fights suck because people keep breaking their hands. Because they were still going the 75 goddamn rounds. 
Uh, and, you know, you broke your hand back then, you were in a lot worse situation than if you break your hand now. So, like, that is going to be a difficulty, but that, I think, could be worked around because once you learn how to actually do it and, like, you learn the things you can and can't do, then you're less likely to break your hand. I mean, that's what that guy Bobby Gunn is always talking about. Uh, it should be really no surprise that this guy like Charles Bennett, who's probably not going to do a whole lot of training for this, he's probably just seeing the numbers on the contract and then just going to show up and just throw them bungalows and then lo and behold, he breaks his hand. I guess you can't really be too surprised at that. I don't know if the breaking the hands is that huge an issue. I think the issue is that it sounds cool. It sounds like a like a fun little like curiosity thing, but it's also going to kind of by its nature exist on the fringes of an already fringe sport. And I wonder like how you can continually get people to pay pay-per-view prices to see this stuff because I think people are going to be like, "All right, I saw it once. I see what it's about. Kind of cool." I don't know if I want to spend more combat sports budgetary money to see more of it, yeah. especially because the fighters who end up in there, there's always a reason. You know who they are from other endeavors, but there's always a reason they ended up here, and it's because things didn't go well over there. Right. Um, I tend to think that the physical toll will be a bigger issue than maybe you you think it will. Uh, if bare knuckle FC becomes a going concern, perhaps one or the other of us will be proved right or wrong. But like to hear you describe it, that bare knuckle boxing, maybe the best case scenario is it becomes a thing that hangs around that people tune in for, uh, on a matchup to matchup basis. Like if we know the people, if we are interested in the personalities, we might want to watch them throw down. Like that's actually not that bad. Like if that's the ceiling for bare knuckle boxing, that sounds now that I've said it out loud, kind of like frighteningly similar to what the best case scenario is for mixed martial arts at the moment. So like if we're going to tune in to watch Chris Lieben fight uh, Phil Baroni, uh, but not to tune in to watch, you know, a couple of people we've never heard of, Bare Knuckle Box. Uh, if we're going to tune in to watch Chris Lytle or we're going to tune in to watch Beck Rawlings or we're going to tune in to watch Joey Beltran, like that's something you can kind of work with if you are the Bare Knuckle Boxing people. Yeah, maybe it is. Uh I mean, you're right that I think that there is going to be a physical damage issue, but I think a lot of it, I mean, broken hands, sure, that's always going to be an issue. I think a lot of it is going to be more cosmetic damage, though, which is maybe, and this sounds weird to say, not the worst thing for you. A bare-knuckle boxing fight is going to have more cuts, more blood, all that kind of stuff, but probably less total brain trauma than gloved fights yeah. in either mixed martial arts or boxing or kickboxing or anything like that. Um, and maybe... Like, that's a way, if you're the promoter, to think of, like, hey, we're satiating the audience's bloodlust. Uh, you you look at them afterwards, and there's no doubt that they've been in a bare-knuckle boxing match. Uh, but we're not turning people's brains to mush, and they could maybe do this a few times a year. Can we talk briefly about the rise of Beck Rawlings in the bare-knuckle boxing scene? Because, you know, she's a person who was kind of like a fringe figure in mixed martial arts, really. Uh, obviously a UFC fighter, but but not the champion, not a person who uh, even won a whole heck of a lot of fights. Did you see the poster for Bare Knuckle FC 2? Yeah, uh, just prominently a featured. Big picture of Joe, or of, uh, I'm sorry, Beck Rawlings across the top, uh, and then all, all the other fighters, including, you know, people like uh, Chris Lytle and Joey Beltran and the uh, shoemaker, the heavyweight guy that they had who knocked somebody the out. boxing hillbilly. The first time. Uh, it seemed like they made a conscious decision to kind of make Beck Rawlings the star of this, both in the pre-fight promotion and the fact that they put a belt on her uh, in this fight. So uh, to me, that is surprising and interesting to see Beck Rawlings kind of like find her groove in bare knuckle boxing. Well, 
I think that this this picture we're looking at here of her and her opponent at the uh, the weigh-in holding the belt, which you're right, really does nail something about what a bare-knuckle boxing belt should look like. It's got three eagles on top of it. <laughs> three, like, physical uh, metal eagles. That's a lot of eagles. Um, but you see her standing there in her bikini all tattooed up, and I'm sure the bare-knuckle boxing people look at that and be like, all right, who can we find for this person to beat up on every single event? And we don't care if it's somebody that people care about or know. Uh, we want her to stick around, and I think it's obvious what they're thinking when they make that decision. Yeah, they, they're they they're selling uh, a certain kind of thing here, for sure. Uh, but, I mean, I guess good for Beck Rawlings, man. Yeah. And she seems to, like, enjoy the heck out of it. She seems very enthusiastic. But, again, I was surprised at how many fighters are super enthusiastic about this idea of bare knuckle. And I thought that afterwards... You know, you'd ask them and they'd be like, oh, okay, now that I've done it, maybe it's not such a great idea, but they're all super into it. And it seems like like Chris Lytle and I think there's a, a few other people where as soon as they kind of hear this idea, there's a part of them that's like, yeah, well, I want to be able to at least say that I had a bare knuckle boxing fight. Like that's that definitely appeals to a broad cross section of fighters. So will there be a bare knuckle FC three? Will we have a bunch of uh, of uh, pretenders to the throne, a bunch of copycats come out and have. Chris Lieben fight uh, Phil Baroni and things like that. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, that that one is scheduled, but I think Bare Knuckle, I, I, I would assume we're going to see at least a few more events out of them. That's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, it's crazy how TMZ Sports just keeps catching up with these UFC personalities on the street. They okay. just always right. seem to know where they're going to be, uh, stroll up to them. They find them more more than willing to start answering their questions in the parking lot or out in front of the boutique, wherever they happen to be. The only thing I can chalk it up to, it just must be great journalism. Yeah, TMZ just must be doing its homework about uh, where Bruce Buffer is going to be getting out of his car. This week. That, that can be the only explanation. It's the only thing I could think of. Yeah. I wonder if UFC employees' attitudes about doing these impromptu stand-up on-the-street interviews with TMZ will begin to change uh, when Bruce Buffer gets the chest of his purple tuxedo in a ringer uh, over these <laughs> comments that he made about Nate Diaz this week. Yeah, okay. So he's coming. For one thing... It's always weird when we're like, all right, let's let's talk to Bruce Buffer about what he thinks about Nate Diaz's claims of under promotion. You're like, all right, I mean, oh look, there's Bruce Buffer. Good yeah. thing I just happened to have my camera and microphone with me. <laughs> you're you really hung up on that, huh? I'm hung up on who was like, you know what? We got to hear from we got to hear from Buffer on this. What's what does Buffer's take? Um, because while like Bruce Buffer has become kind of a UFC staple and is really closely associated with the brand, and people have these like. Uh, strong, positive opinion of Bruce Buffer. They really like having him around. You know, Bruce Buffer reads people's names off a note card. It's not like... He does flips and stuff. No, he... Twirls. He, he, I shouldn't say flips. He brings... Flips overstates yeah. it. Twirls. Yeah. He does twirls. He brings some energy. I understand. People fist are, bump. People Buffer fist it. bump. But yeah, for him to go out there and say like, uh, Nate Diaz shouldn't complain about being underpromoted. He made a lot of money from his last fight with Conor McGregor, and he should bow down. That's where he lost it, was like he should bow down to Dana White. And, I mean, I understand why, if you're Bruce Buffer, that perspective makes sense 
for Bruce Buffer. He should bow down to Dana White because you can replace Bruce Buffer. Like, you can replace him with Joe Martinez, and the ship sails on very smoothly. You don't lose a whole lot. Like, you know, people will be like, oh, man, I miss it when Bruce Buffer was around, or it felt like a bigger fight night every time I'd see Bruce Buffer. But it's not like pay-per-views are going to tank if you lose Bruce Buffer. Like, he really does owe a great debt to Dana White and those people for continuing to use him. So I can understand kind of why he sees that. But it's also, we get back into this conversation about, like, you can't complain about anything if you made good money to fight in a cage. Because the thing people seem to forget is if Nate Diaz made a whole bunch of money for his last fight with Conor McGregor, the UFC made more. They, they always make more. Like, they, what, however much Nate Diaz made, they made more than that. So, yeah, he can still complain if he thinks that, like, he's being used wrong or that they're kind of trying to discard him. And even the whole thing with Conor McGregor, I mean, they brought him in on short notice after they had a, a guy fall out. They were not really planning on Nate Diaz winning that first fight against Conor McGregor. He won it. He changed his own kind of fortunes in that way. And then he goes out there, and the rematch is even bigger, in part because of who Nate Diaz is and that people still care about him and because he won the first fight. He earned that damn money, man. Like, don't be like, hey, you made some money, so therefore you have to shut up and uh, bow down whenever you see Dana White. So I watched the Bruce Buffer TMZ video for the journalism. Right. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me, he doesn't actually say bow down. He just says bow to Dana White, which it's semantics. It's a subtle difference. It is semantics. But I feel like one of the true gaffes here committed by Bruce Buffer is now the like uh, the perpetuation of the phrase bow down. Because that is going to mean something specific to Nate Diaz, and he is not going to like it. Yeah. It's like he remembers that West Side Connection song. It's the worst possible choice of words. If you were going to, for one thing, I can't imagine what Bruce Buffer is thinking, saying this stuff about Nate Diaz. And when you watch the video, he's like, oh, I love Nate, you know, whatever. But like, are you serious, bro? Like, <laughs> you know what is going to happen. You know that like that the Diaz brothers have never met a perceived slight that they didn't clap back on immediately. Well, no, his response on Twitter. With all respect, Nate, that is not what I meant by saying the word bow. I meant it as a sign of respect as in when greeting someone, not a sign of submission, as I'd never expect you to do that for anyone. Praying hands emoji. Now, uh, see, that's interesting because if you watch the video for the journalism, he doesn't do the praying hands emoji while he says it. He does the two-handed bow. Like, <laughs> Well, come on. And also, like, I was just saying that you should greet Dana White uh, with a two-handed bow, like a <laughs> I'm not worthy Wayne's World style bow. Yeah, we all know what that what that means. Like you're not saying like I think that you should uh, you start using a traditional Japanese greeting with Dana White. Which hey, if that's what you meant, the Diaz brothers might be into that. They might. They might. Also, might be more into slapping a motherfucker in his face though, slightly. Uh, but again, then it prompts this same old conversation that we've had over and over again, where people act like fight, like people act like Dana White invented professional fighting. And like, I hear I even heard like somebody's, uh, on Twitter talking to me like, you know what, if not for Dana White, Nate Diaz would be working construction somewhere. You know, there's other ways to be a pro fighter than working for Dana White. Dana White got his buddies to buy the UFC. They did a good job building it up from there, but it's not like Dana White 
was the visionary who was like, you know what people might be into? Watching two human beings fight. I know it sounds crazy, but stick with me. I'm going to be the first person to ever promote fights between human beings. And Nate Diaz's life was then forever changed, thanks to Dana White. It's not how it works. Plus, like, a, a guy like Nate Diaz, who he got himself in this situation, he gets to have an opinion about how the situation is playing out. And over and over again, people have told Nate Diaz, you know what, you are not as valuable as you're acting like you are. You need to be grateful that you're getting anything. That has happened to him over and over in his career. And because he refused to listen to that, and because he kept insisting that he was more valuable, and because then he he won some of these key fights and people were really just like magnetically attracted to the, the whole aura of the Diaz brothers, it became true. Like he got here by ignoring the people who continually say that every time fighters complain about pay. And yet still people don't get the point. Right. And the umbrella issue is that part of that vision of visionary Dana White was that the UFC would keep 85% of the profits and roughly between (laughs) 13 and 15% of the profits would go to the athletes. That's the visionary part of it. Right. Once you know that that's the split, that that was the true vision of the Fertitta brothers and Dana White and was also, uh, I think we can assume a big part of why Endeavor, WMEIMG Endeavor wanted to buy the company, then it doesn't really matter how much money you got paid. Because imagine that was you out there being the, the, the attraction, being the talent, being the presentation. As long as you're getting 15% and the other guy is getting 85, you're probably not going to be happy. Yeah, Even not, if your 15% is $7 million. Not overflowing with gratitude at that point. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know that there's a lot of bowing down that ought to happen. It still strikes me as just inconceivable that Bruce Buffer would, would say those words, that those words would come out of his mouth because he's exactly the kind of person that the Diaz brothers would love to slap <laughs> announcer guy, like uh, Natalie attired announcer guy. Yeah. seems like the Diaz brothers are waiting for a reason to snap, slap a guy like that. Yeah. That's just, even good. if they had previously been friendly up to that point, good promo material for them. That, you know, TMZ is just going to keep accidentally bumping into UFC employees out on the streets Asking him questions. How about that? Just off the cuff. Uh, you want to do just saying stuff? Sure. And then we'll uh, get out of here for this week. Ben, what, what is your just saying stuff for this week? Chad, you mentioned earlier Chris Lytle on this bare knuckle boxing event. 44-year-old firefighter Chris Lytle comes out of retirement, goes down there, murks a dude in the first round. And I cannot help but imagine the conversation when Chris Lytle gets back to the firehouse. And everybody's sitting around waiting for the alarm to ring, I assume. Yeah. Uh, Playing just, with the Dalmatian. Just like in Ghostbusters. Yeah, they're, they're waiting for the alarm to ring. They're petting the Dalmatian. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, you know, took the kids out to the lake, went and saw a movie, you know, had dinner with the wife. How about you, Chris? Went down to Mississippi, won a bare-knuckle boxing match. I'm just saying... But that kind of shuts the room down. <laughs> Nobody's talking about the the ground rule double they hit in rec league softball over the weekend after that. Just saying. Well, Ben, this week I'm just saying I know that you have seen the poster for the upcoming Bellator MMA fight between Fedor Emelianenko and Chael Sonnen. I have. Now, I know that I'm not the first person to bring this up, but one of the things about the poster is that uh, Fedor Emelianenko is out there looking like Fedor Emelianenko, and Chael Sonnen is dressed up like Apollo Creed. Mm-hmm. He's got these Stars and Stripes top hat, the red, white, and blue trunks on. Uh, it almost looks like they just photoshopped Chael Sonnen's face onto uh, somebody else wearing that outfit. Yeah. 
One of the things that that I keep thinking about, Ben, is that in the movie where Apollo Creed dresses up in that outfit and fights the Russian, he dies. <laughs> Apollo Creed dies in that movie. Like James Brown comes out and sings Living in America, and then Apollo Creed dies. Throw the damn towel. Did nobody tell Chael Sonnen that Apollo <laughs> Creed dies when against the Russian when he wears that outfit? If he dies, he dies, Chad. I'm just saying. Just saying. I want to think that. I would expect somebody like Jail Zonda would think that through. Like, oh, the last guy they put on this outfit and then went out there and fought a Russian, he died. He got beat to death in the ring. Yeah, and while I might believe that if you told me Jail Zonda hadn't seen Citizen Kane, he's seen Rocky IV. Oh, he has Rocky IV on DVD. He has it on Laserdisc <laughs> at the house in a box on the garage. Throw the damn towel. Apollo Creed dies in that movie, Chael. <laughs> Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week. That's the, uh, what is it, UFC 228? UFC 220, what number are we at? Uh, what number are we at here? 228. Woodley versus Till. Be looking ahead to uh, Tyron Woodley versus Darren Till. Um, then a, you know, a bunch of other stuff probably will come our way after that. As for now, though, uh, we are done. We are through. We are out. Okay, the real question is, in Chael Sonnen's version of this story, who is his James Brown? Like, is he... Oh, yeah. Kenny Chesney? Yeah. Chris Stapleton, maybe? Hmm. Yeah. That's that's the question. That, the, everyone's going to be on the edge of their seats to find that out. Which crappy new country song is Chael Sonnen going to walk out to? Does he still walk out to uh, I Ain't Never Had Too Much Fun? Because that was his song in the UFC for a long time. Does Bellator have the song. rights to that? You know, you get the arena ass cap thing, man. You'd be fine. Right to it. Oh, I suppose, yeah. Uh, I'm just saying, if you were Chael Sonnen, you would think twice before you wore that attire to the ring, wouldn't you? Well. Because Fedor Emelianenko, for all we love him, seems like kind of like if he dies, he dies kind of a guy. He does. He does. Also, I would think um, that outfit is the only scenario you'll ever get Chael Sonnen to wear a top hat in. Oh, I think you'd be surprised. <laughs> Tell him we're, we're filming a commercial for Mean Streets Pizza, and we need him to be in the, like, uh, guy from Monopoly. 